1: and uh, has really put and reminded me
0: what's truly important.
1: Damian Luller.
0: That was for Seattle.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports
1: Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio, powered by Malka Sports. My guest this week, John Wartime. He's the author of the new book, Glory Days. The Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. It's out in bookstores starting on June 15th. You can also watch John Wartime as a correspondent on 60 Minutes on CBS. He's a friend. He's been on the show many times before. Just a great book. He's written several books. This is by far my favorite. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy the book when it comes out on June 15th. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. And uh, two things I want to mention. One, John is always awesome. He's so insightful and deep and great stories and just a great conversation. And two, what a weekend for sports, NBA playoffs. And how about the PGA champion, Phil Mickelson?
1: Yeah, let's start there. So Phil Mickelson wins the PGA championship at age 50. He's the oldest person to ever win a major championship. The ratings were good. Final round, had a viewership of about 6.6 million viewers, so that's up from last year. Lefty took home 2.16 million for his performance, part of a record $12 million total purse for the tournament. So now, you know, you start looking at, at Mickelson more historically. Um, he's got 45 PGA Tour wins, six major titles, $94.6 million in career on course earnings second only to Tiger Woods 120.8 million dollar total and Greg's the thing that was shocking about this he was 300 to 1 in most sports books to win this and his last major tournament win came in 2013 at the British Open so this came out of nowhere
2: Yeah, it was just, it was so fun. I mean, Phil is just so likable. You can't not like him. And he was just, you were the end there. I was just like, come on, keep it going, keep it going. Everybody was rooting for him. The crowds were a little crazy. He was in a little engulfed there on the 18th hole, but Hey, the crowds were back. That was fun. And I think I heard a stat too. He's won in four different decades now. I mean, that's amazing.
1: Wow. That is really amazing. I hadn't heard that stat. So Forbes estimated in 2020 that Mickelson has made $750 million in endorsement. So his sponsors include Callaway, Amgen, Heineken, Rolex, Amstel Light, Mizzen in Maine. And much like we talked about with Hideki Matsuyama, who won the Masters, I would think this opens up even more doors for Mickelson to get more endorsements. So that number could go up. But Griggs, you know, like you said, he's such a likable guy. He's on social media now within the last year or so, and he's pretty engaging on social media I think he's looked at uh, differently today than maybe he was 20 years ago, just because he's he's older and he's more mature. And again, he just did something that no one else has done. He won a major at 50. So I'd be shocked if there's not companies lining up to work with him.
2: You know, I was thinking he was wearing those shades all week. And I'm like, someone's got to be sponsoring those things. Let's get those shades sponsored.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really... Good point. I think he chose a CBD gum. I don't know, you know, what brand, but you know that's been talked about before to kind of keep him calm. You see, he's doing the breathing exercises now. Maybe the app Calm should sponsor him. Like we <laughs> could just sit here and think of all kinds of sponsors for Phil Mickelson.
2: Uh, the list is endless on that.
1: Yeah, and then the cool thing too is his brother uh, is his caddy. So his brother' backstory could have been the agent for John Rahm, who's one of the top ranked golfers in the world, but then. Phil and his longtime caddy Bones parted ways. So Phil's saying to his brother, hey, you want a caddy for me? So his brother gave up the opportunity to be an agent for John Rahm and and probably make a lot of money because John Rahm has made a lot of money. But now that he's on Phil's bag, he just got a huge payday, as we just mentioned, for this PGA Championship. So he's probably happy to be on his brother's golf bag. And then, you know, he's also making good money with Phil.
2: Well, and that, how cool the the embrace at eighteen, you know, brother to brother, big old hug, just hung on forever. I mean, that you just know that feeling if you have siblings. That's such a cool thing.
1: Well, and the other thing that I think we really noticed this weekend for the first time in a year is fans are back, right? So you saw the huge gallery behind Phil as he's coming up eighteen. You watch these NBA games, you watch car racing, you know, you watch NHL. Fans are starting to come back, and you know it's interesting some. Events are having vaccinated sections and non-vaccinated sections, as we've been talking about on the show. Others are just, you know, letting people in and, and, you know, I don't know if they're asking them for proof of vaccination or not. But the one thing you realize if you watch TV or if you attend an event in person is fans are back, not at 100 percent capacity, but certainly more than what we've seen in the last year.
2: Oh, yeah. And you can just feel the energy, especially I've been watching a lot of NBA playoffs like the players just love it. You know, they feed off the the energy and the guys court side, And it's just so nice to have crowds back. And it sounds good. It feels good. The energy is good. I love it.
1: All right. One more big headline of the week. The NBA has announced the launch of NBA Africa. It's valued at nearly a billion dollars. The entity is going to conduct the league's operations in Africa, including the Basketball Africa League. So investors behind this in addition to the NBA. Dikembe Mutombo, Joe Kim Noah, Luol Dang, Grant Hill, and Junior Bridgman. Those are players that played in the NBA who are amongst the investors for NBA Africa Griggs.
2: Yeah, I think it's a cool idea. I mean, we've talked about how worldwide the sport of basketball is, especially with the NBA and the jerseys sold everywhere. You've seen it being in you know Tokyo and Philippines and all this. It's worldwide. So why not start some of these leagues? I think it's awesome.
1: All right, coming up next, good friend John Wartime author of the new book, Glory Days, the Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. I'm telling you what, I have never read a book with more backstories than this book. And we're going to talk about some of those backstories that I never knew about, including how did Michael Jackson's victory tour lead to Robert Kraft purchasing the New England Patriots? We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Sports Business Radio host Brian Berger here. The wait is finally over. Sports Business Radio merchandise has finally arrived. We're working with our friends at The Parish Project to provide you with the opportunity to buy really quality Sports Business Radio merchandise. We've started with long-sleeve t-shirts and short-sleeve t-shirts. They come in five different colors each, a variety of sizes. I love my shirts, And soon, we're going to have hoodies to offer as well, hooded sweatshirts. I know a lot of you are wearing hooded sweatshirts while you're working from home these days, but whether you're working out, just lounging around the house, or doing whatever you're doing, you can rock Sports Business Radio merchandise. I think you're going to love it. Go to parishproject.com. That's P-A-R-I-S-H Project.com. Parishproject.com. And you can order your sports business radio merchandise today. We appreciate your support and uh, send us your best picture. Tweet it to us at SB Radio, or also you can get us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. We look forward to seeing you rocking that sports business radio merchandise. My guest is John Wartime. He is the author of the new book, Glory Days, the summer of 1984, the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. You can find it in bookstores starting on June 15th. You can also find John serving as a correspondent on 60 Minutes on CBS. Follow him on Twitter at John underscore Wartime. John's a good friend. John, thanks for joining me. I got to tell you, this is my favorite book that you've written. I'm not just saying that because you're on right now. I absolutely love this book.
0: I, I would say that's the recency effect um, and, and the subject you came into contact with most recently is first and foremost in your mind, but I guess that's, that's undercut a little bit by the fact that we're talking about events that were 37 years old. So uh, I appreciate that. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's very nice to hear and nice of you to say.
1: So after reading the book, it really is remarkable that these 90 days shaped sports for decades to come. At what point did you have the idea for this book? Um, that, that's a good
0: question. I mean, I, I had written a story, and I, I think you and I may even have spoken about this. I had written a story about the 1984 Olympic trials, which happened in my town in Indiana. And yep. Bob Knight was a coach, and Michael Jordan came through, and, and I wrote them. Um, I wrote an essay about that and I, I can't remember how it went down. I mean, I think my agent was like, do you think there's was enough for a book here? And I sort of thought, yeah, I don't know if there's, I mean, Jack, you know, my, my buddy, Jack, Jack McCall put together a great book on the, the 92 dream team. I'm not sure the 1984 U S Olympic team quite had enough weight for a book, but I started thinking about whether there was a way to sort of expand this out or whether this fit into a, a broader picture. And then I sort of, I, the more I poked around I was like holy shit a lot a lot happened during this summer and you know I, I was 13 so I wanted to sort of divorce myself from it and not I, I was sort of open to the suggestion things seemed larger than life because it was a pretty pivotal summer for me personally but the more I sort of dug and the more I talked to other people you realize that it was just an incredible amount of stuff and not just these events we all remember but events that are really relevant today and I, I sort of, so that was sort of the genesis. And I, I guess part of it was nostalgia and telling these stories and uh, revisiting. But I also kind of wanted to figure out w- was this just a fluke or was there something going on that led to this? I mean, my, my thesis in the book is this was really the summer when sports went big time and sort of we went from whatever the cliche, you know, black and white to color or from. Uh, you know, we, we went from dial-up to uh, to, to wireless. Um, this was really when sports professionalized, when sports, it was the summer of Jordan. It was when marketing took place. But I, I sort of went into it thinking, this is going to be a collection of fun stories. But if we can find some sort of unifying theme, then we'll really have something.
1: So the stories in this book are just off the charts. Like, you know, I think I'm kind of an insider from over the years man your stories in this book from you know the michael jordan nike deal to you know how david stern was in his first year as commissioner of the nba in 1984 and he was trying to put the league on the map it was the first year of magic versus bird in the nba finals it was the michael jordan nba draft it was the summer of the olympics in los angeles but one of the things i really love about this book is The backstory. So, you know, I never heard the story of the Sullivans who own the Patriots and how the victory tour with Michael Jackson influenced them having to sell the Patriots to Robert Kraft. And if that doesn't happen, the Patriots probably aren't the Patriots as we know them today. There's just crazy stories. The whole, uh, you know, Vince McMahon is coming onto the scene in 1984. ESPN as a network is coming onto the scene in 1984. They started in 79, but they really start, you know, being able to charge the cable companies in 1984. So many different things. Uh, You pointed out John McEnroe and Martina Navratilova at the height of their powers in 1984 and how they changed tennis, uh, CBS Sports Saturday, you know, that legendary Sports Saturday, I think it was at the US Open when they had all those hours of coverage. So by the end of this book, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that this all took place in 1984. I was 15 years old. So you said you were 13. I remember this all vividly. So we'll go into some of that. But one of the things So you're a kid in Bloomington, Indiana, and you're going to the 1984 Bobby Knight Olympic practices at Indiana University. Is it true that Michael Jordan nicknamed you John McEnroe? He sees you walking around with your tennis racket and he's calling you McEnroe?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think I wrote about (laughs) this too. Um, So some of it, Indiana is really the center of the basketball universe around then, And so, you know, they won the national title with Isaiah Thomas. Uh, two or three years before that, and they always had this top team, and Bob Knight is the most successful coach. They would win again in 87. So it didn't seem that extraordinary. And remember, this is before cable, this is a right. totally different pre internet world. It didn't seem, it was sort of hard to gauge. I mean, yeah, in retrospect, it's crazy that like <laughs> Michael Jordan and Pat Ewing are like sitting next to everyone at the Karate Kid, or you know, there's Chris Mullins playing putt putt with like the family of three because they need to pick up a fourth. But it was before, again, it was kind of right in this this hinge point when sports went big time. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I tell the story where a, a bunch of us, you know, we're in middle school. We have this plan. We're going to sneak into assembly hall and watch the practice for the Olympic team. And then we get to the door, and it's it's wide open. <laughs> and it's college town. It's a sleepy college town in the best of times. It's a ghost town in the summer. And the players are staying at the student union and they hold a practice and keep, I mean, this is Bob Knight is a coach and George Raveling and, and it's, it's Patrick Ewing and Jordan and, you know, Barkley, I think had been cut, but Barkley may have been there. But anyway, it is such a sleepy town and, and basketball is at such a different place than it is now that they didn't even have someone locking the doors. I mean, anyone off the street could have walked in and watched Michael Jordan play from, from two feet away. And so, yeah, Michael Jordan would, would see me, you know, I mean, there was a very finite number of people that were there in the summer and, you know, two thirds of the town didn't even know this thing was going on. And I was a sort of sports geeky kid with his tennis racket. So Michael Jordan would see me every few days and you'd run into him, you know, there was a place where he liked to get a smoothie and there's a, you know, again, it's a college town. You sort of inevitably cross paths with someone. And so uh, after a while, yeah, he started calling me John McAndrew that summer. And uh, it, again, it didn't even seem that extraordinary because Michael Jordan wasn't Michael Jordan. Basketball wasn't basketball. The Olympics weren't the Olympics. Media wasn't media. It just seemed like kind of, hey, it's a, kind of a cool thing. And this guy ended up getting picked third in the draft a few weeks later. But it wasn't like,
1: it, it was this extraordinary moment. It just seemed, seemed kind of natural. That's incredible. It is almost like after 84, everything changed. I mean, you mentioned in that draft. Uh, the NBA draft, you've got Olajuwon, Jordan, Barkley, Stockton, who all became Hall of Famers. And by the way, for the, the young ones listening, Charles Barkley and John Stockton, they didn't even make that Olympic team. Bobby yeah, Knight right. caught them. I mean, that's crazy. They're Hall of Famers now. And amongst the 50 greatest NBA players to ever play, they didn't even make that Olympic team. That's That's crazy if you think about it uh
0: carl malone i mean you could, you could have
1: a second you know the silver right. medal
0: team would have been the cuts but um yeah i mean it's funny you mentioned the draft because i mean literally we, we could go down and do this for, for every topic but the draft that we talk about and now we all we, you know i mean now it's uh the portland pick sambui and and the Wan went first and and you know bob knight didn't let jordan go to the draft so jordan was in indiana when he got drafted and he ended up you know, doing a little two way with a Chicago TV station, and then George Raveling took him to get a Big Mac, and then he went back to practice. That was his draft day. But, um, you know, D- David Stern, who I know, you know, both of us uh, were, were quite fond of, and he was, I mean, you know, I usually don't, don't give away my sources, but he was tremendously helpful with this book. And he tells this great story. This was his first draft as commissioner, they held it in the middle of the day. On a weekday, and literally NBA employees are out on the street outside of Penn Station, like a comedy club inviting commuters to come in and watch the draft. You think about what the event, you know what kind of an event the draft is right now. This was held at the Felt Forum, which is sort of the side annex to Madison Square Garden. They never could have held it in the garden. And it was on you know a, a Tuesday afternoon in Midtown Manhattan, and they paid USA today. they They paid for the TV coverage. And that was the scale of things. And, and Stern tells these great stories. He had to beg and plead players to come. And Elijah Wan was there because his parents came in. And then Stern picked out a restaurant where he took all the players that were about to get drafted. But it had a very low ceiling. So he thought he blew it with Elijah Wan because his family kept hitting their head on the ceiling. He ended up getting a player. I don't know if you remember, there was NBA player Tony Campbell. Yep. Um, and Stern was able to get him because he went to David Stern's high school. and uh when when he drafted him david stern said you know from ohio state and teanack high um but that's you know the the commissioner i mean think about that the commissioner has got to beg players to go to the draft and he's able to get one of them because they happen to go to the same high school i mean compare that to where basketball is right now and uh it's it's a pretty significant arc
1: we've traced well it's why and i know you and i have discuss this it's why david stern is the greatest commissioner of my lifetime and, and i think in the history of pro sports if you look at where the nba was in 1984 and remember a few years earlier there were drug scandals the games the finals were tape delayed lakers sixers 1980 tape delayed and you fast forward to when david stern left office and had, handed over the reins to adam silver um And you tell some great stories in there about how Adam Silver's dad is David Stern's mentor. And then obviously David Stern becomes Adam Silver's mentor. And now Adam Silver is running the NBA, but um, you know, Stern truly was a visionary and he saw around corners as everyone said, Uh, magic Johnson said that too. Um, But the stories you have, one of the other great stories in the book is the cross-country trips of the NBA Finals in 84 between the Lakers and the Celtics. And imagine now, audience, LeBron James and the Lakers flying commercial with only LeBron and AD and maybe one or two other players being able to sit in first class and everyone else had to sit back and coach. That's what we had in 1984. The Celtics and the Lakers are traveling commercial, walking through the opposing team's airport on the way to the plane. That's crazy, John. Now we have private jets and everything. I'll give you a
0: better <laughs> one than that. Um, at one point, I, I, I got to find the story because I, I wrote it, but you know this, this is what happened. This is the dirty secret of these books is you write them and then it takes a year and totally yeah. good, so I, I haven't visited this in a while, but um, I think it was Pat, Pat Riley wanted to just get the hell out of there and get to Boston for game seven and they ended up taking a red eye. I mean, you're right. Everyone flew commercial and you'd see the players you know, at the urinal by the United terminal and then you right. see him on the plane. And and the other thing is that the first class, um, it, it went to the veterans. So it was by seniority. So if you weren't in the league a long time, Oh, Michael Jordan was sitting in coach right. because whoever Orlando Woolridge pulled rank on him, but the, uh, for game seven, so game seven, 1984 finals. If y'all remember it, it's magic. It's, it's bird. It's Kareem, It's the close of it's, it's the clothesline of Rambus. This absolutely seminal series game seven and the Lakers fly from Washington from LA to Washington DC on a red eye and then fly they didn't even get a direct flight so i'm thinking imagine you're imagine you're in you know Dulles and you say wait a second there's magic johnson i just saw him about 6 hours ago playing a basketball game on the other coach the other coast and now he's walking through my airport so they didn't even not, not only did they fly commercial but for game 7 of the NBA finals the lakers didn't even get
1: a direct flight that's crazy. I won't spoil it for our listening audience. You got to buy the book, but there's even an L McPherson NBA finals airplane story in the book. <laughs> I mean, that is a classic when I read that. So, okay, we've got the NBA, we've got Jordan coming into the league. Um, there's even Donald Trump in this book and Donald Trump is young and he uh, is looking to buy a football team and he ends up buying uh, USFL team in New York, and Herschel Walker plays for that team. Herschel Walker won the Heisman Trophy at the University of Georgia. But it's interesting to see you know, Donald Trump, before he was Donald Trump as we know him today, President of the United States, and someone who really wanted to build his portfolio with the sports franchise.
0: Yeah, that that was really the summer Donald Trump became a national figure. Until then, he was sort of this, this New York developer, but no one really knew him. And that summer, he was on the cover of GQ. And it wasn't like, oh, we got this Donald Trump profile. It was, we're going to introduce this guy to a national audience. And the New York Times Magazine right around the same time also did a big piece on Donald Trump. So this is really when Donald Trump blows up and goes from this, this sort of local curiosity to this national figure. And the stories, you go back and read them. And it is just remarkable, either how little Donald Trump changed or how prescient they were. I mean, it would say, you know, riding with Donald Trump is like going on a motorcycle without a windshield. And, it, you know, you, you can't believe everything he says, but there's an undeniable magnetism to the guy. And you could literally write that same story 37 years later. But but Donald Trump realized that, you know, you slap your name on a building and that's that's fine. But if you really want to be a celebrity, you need to fast track it. And the way he fast tracked his celebrity and his image was by becoming a sports owner. So uh, you know, it's it's funny. You, you say he bought the, uh, the the New York Generals, which is what he called them. It was a team in New Jersey, and it was the New York Generals of the USFL. But Donald Trump, you know, in, in his t- typical sort of Trumpian way of, of conflating uh, truth and exaggerating, he just changed the name. I mean, just unilaterally started calling them the New York uh, Generals. And Charlie Steiner was the, the voice of the team. John. And uh, he had a lot of great recollections. But um, 1984, yeah, was the summer that Donald Trump really emerged as this as this national figure. And he used sports to do it. I think he realized, like, owning real estate is is fine and you can make a lot of money. But if you really want to be a celebrity, you need to broaden your portfolio. And the way he did it, for, you know, he married uh, – he was very – and you know, his wife designed the cheerleading uniforms and he did the same thing where he held the events the same way he came down the escalator. He held all the preseason events at Trump Plaza. I mean, it was very much the same playbook. But um, you know, this June of
1: 1984 was exactly like June of you know 2015. So the other chapter in this book that I frankly had no idea about, you know, and I, I think I'm a pretty good sports historian. So this was Who knew that the Michael Jackson victory tour and the Jackson brothers tour would somehow lead to Robert Kraft buying the New England Patriots? And, you know, again, read the book for the full story. But I had no idea about that story. At what point did you kind of put all those pieces together to learn that story?
0: You know, it's funny that that story I'd actually I'd heard that story from Al Michaels when uh, when I when we did. The book project together uh, for his book A couple of years ago and then I said oh shit That was 1984 also so uh, That was sort of a story I'd Heard a few years back um, from Al And then reported it out And yeah it's it's pretty much exactly what you said Which is Michael Jackson has Thriller he's the most popular He's literally the most popular human being on the Planet I mean mm-hmm. it was like Michael Jackson Mother Teresa Margaret Thatcher <laughs> Ronald Reagan I mean it was Michael Jackson was Absolute king, king of pop like Sells him short he was just like king of global population. And so after Thriller, largely at his parents behest to enrich his siblings, uh, people might remember the victory tour. Um, but before the victory tour, Michael Jackson shot that Pepsi commercial. He ca- catches on fire and the tour. I mean, what's, what's less funny about all this is that that incident ended up by, by many accounts leading to his prescription pain medication addiction, which eventually killed him. Right. But, um, no, the, the, the tour was an absolute debacle. Don King was somehow insinuated himself as tour manager. They spent more money, you know, it took fleets of trucks just to construct the stages. There were backup dancers that had per diems. (laughs) And the person that bankrolled that tour was the Sullivan family that owned the Patriots and they collateralized the tour with Sullivan stadium where the Patriots played. The tour is an absolute debacle. It loses a ton of money. The Sullivan family end up losing the Patriots, and through a lot of sleight of hand, uh, as you say, they they end up in the hands of Bob Kraft. And I think it's very easy. And Bob Kraft will do it himself. I mean, Bob Kraft in his office today has a poster of that victory tour. Um, I think it's no exaggeration to say the Patriots and the Patriots dynasty, and Bob Kraft's stewardship, and Brady and Belichick, and then all the Super Bowls
1: may not have happened if the uh, victory tour hadn't been such a debacle. It's just amazing. So then you've got the 1984 Olympics in LA and, you know, again, the Olympics today are such a spectacle and there's billions of dollars that are paid to acquire and produce the Olympics back then. Um, you know, as you note in your book, it's kind of the first Olympics where, We're using some electronics and some technology to whether it's measuring a long distance uh, jumper or putting out press releases or uh, things of that nature. Um, Technology changed with the Olympics and, and, you know, Carl Lewis was big, Mary Lou Retton. Peter Ubroth, a young Peter Ubroth who became the commissioner of Major League Baseball oversaw those Olympics. But I think the blueprint for how to produce an Olympic Games changed in 1984 at those LA Games. Do you agree?
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, you know, you're you're, you're totally right. And you're, you know, it was Michael Jordan, it was Carl Lewis, it was Mary Lou and the star of those games was Peter Ubroth. And uh, I mean, the one story I, I tell in the book that I like is the Lake Placid Games, so the previous Olympics held in the U.S., it was four years prior, Winter Games, Miracle on Ice. There were something like 300 Olympic sponsors for total revenue of $10 million. And a lot of it was like, hey, even like Sports Illustrated, we're going to give out free magazines to all the athletes. All right, you're an Olympic sponsor. (laughs) Press toothpaste. We'll give out tubes of toothpaste. $10 million. Peter Eubroth comes in and he says, we're going to start running this like a business. A, these TV rights have got to go way up. B, I want 30 sponsors paying a minimum of $4 million. None of this free giveaway stuff. Right. So, first thing he does is he has a beverage, sort of a basically a bidding war Coke and Pepsi. Blind bids. Coke ends up bidding $12.2 million to be the Olympic sponsor. So, with one Coke Pepsi bidding mm-hmm. war, he's already eclipsed the entire sponsorship of the 1980 Games, the previous Olympics. God. And Yeah, you mentioned the technology. AT&T was a sponsor. So part of it was, you know, they get to splash their banner, but also they can show off their product. And one of their products was something called an electronic messaging system. (laughs) And they had a press release saying, how would you like to communicate with friends and family without picking up a telephone? You can do it through a computer. And they had what was called the Olympic EMS. And all the athletes got passwords. Very few of them actually activated their password. But what became clear later was um, this was email. This was one of the very, very first email systems that it was being used for the L.A. games and at sort of trotted it out as part of their sponsorship and hardly anyone used it. I mean, there's one funny story. Um, Jay Billis was uh, a Duke basketball player at the time, but he had an interest in media and he got a job with ABC as an intern. And some of his uh, co-workers who were also sort of runners and interns in their 20s as a joke would they signed up jay billis they put in a password and they started sending messages to female workers saying oh god you know i'm, I'm jay billis what are you doing tonight and um it was a prank and i, I said little little did anyone know jay billis was one of the original uh victims but um no i mean these these olympic games though were absolutely pivotal and this was proof so remember uh, the olympics had huge deficit in Montreal, the 80 games were boycotted. I mean, the Olympic movement was really teetering. I mean, in, in May of 84, as a run-up to the games, Newsweek had to cover, are the games dead? Right. And then come the 84 games, and it's a lot of TV. It's the McDonald's giveaway. It's Michael Jordan. It's Mary Lou Retton. These ratings, it's the most watched television event at the time in history, and they turn a profit of something between $250 million and $300 million. And it completely changed the way we think of the Olympics. And you think about the commercialization of the games. And now even today, you know, 2021, what are we talking about? Well, Tokyo, if it's going to happen through COVID, it's because NBC and all the Olympic sponsors are going to make it happen. All the seeds for that
1: started in the summer of 84. Yeah. Uh, Another big part of the book, you know, kind of weaving in that Michael Jordan theme is you have great details on the Michael Jordan Nike deal. And a lot of people may not know that Michael Jordan liked Adidas and he wasn't really a Nike guy, but through a series of meetings and pitches and, um, you know, some close relationships with people like George Raveling, who we both know, um, David Falk and Rob Strasser, who was a Nike executive at the time, they basically made this deal and that deal, David Falk's been on this show it laid the blueprint for how deals got done in the future. But they looked at Michael Jordan as more of a tennis player than a basketball player and more of a brand than you know, Converse had looked at Magic Johnson or Larry Bird or you know, some of the Dr. J, the people who were doing deals before then. So it was a groundbreaking deal. But one of the parts of the book, you know, I remember you, you had in there, like there were some incentive clause that Jordan had to meet. So if he's Rookie of the Year, if he averages 20 points a game, if they sell, I think, $10 million in product for the year, then you know certain incentives kick in. Jordan was Rookie of the Year. He averaged a lot more than 20 points a game. And they did, what, $100 million in Nike shoe sales for the Jordan brand. And the rest is history, right? Like Jordan hasn't played in years. And it's a multi-billion dollar company now. But the point is that deal, as you outline in the book, really did change the blueprint for how athletes and companies made marketing deals going forward.
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, I think David Bach comes in for a lot of credit here, who came from a tennis background at, at the agency where he worked and sort of, they'd go to Converse and they would say you know, what can you do for my client? And they'd say, what do you mean, what can we do for a client? We do what for your client, what we do for Dr. J and what we do for Bird and Magic, you know, pay, pay him a little money. He wears the shoes. He does a poster. Right. And uh, everybody goes home happy. And David Stern completely rethought that. And Rob Strasser, you mentioned, uh, who was this tremendous, colorful character um, at Nike at the time, who was sort of Phil, Phil Knight's secret weapon. He totally got it um they sent uh, you know designers to the meetings and basically yeah the idea was to treat michael jordan as a brand this hadn't really been done before especially with a guy who hadn't played an nba game before and um you know david fox thought he had designed a very clever contract and he had where you know basically you had to meet these incentive clauses um but as you as you note uh Jordan shattered those. And then then he got smart. You know, the the Bulls had something similar where Michael Jordan got a bonus if the Chicago Bulls, which at the time I think were drawing something like 44% of capacity. I mean, one out of every two seats went unsold at the old Chicago stadium. Um, So then they put in incentive clauses with his Bulls contract as well. And yeah, I mean, soon Michael Jordan obviously was making multiples more. You know, I think, I think, I think his initial contract was five hundred and fifty thousand dollars uh with the Chicago Bulls as as the number three pick in the draft, as the guy who was gonna turn around this franchise. And he was making multiples of that, uh, as well he should have through through Nike and his endorsements. And you know, I mean, part of this, you're right, is how the Jordan brand today is a multiple billion dollar brand, but also um you look at how every star is marketed today and it really started with that blueprint that David Falk drew up uh, in the summer of 84. Again, I mean, I think you mentioned George Raveling and Sonny Vaccaro. I mean, there are a lot of people that uh, sort of come in for some credit. They're competing uh, narratives about what happened and when it happened. Yeah, You know, you sort of, at some point you have to make some judgment calls in in the reporting there. It's a pity that Strasser is no longer with us because you get the feeling he would have uh, been much more of a neutral party, but, the fact of the matter is it was a really smart way to sell an athlete. All this was done before Jordan played a minute in the NBA, which I think sometimes gets lost in this story. I mean, a lot of bets were made. And Jordan obviously f- fulfilled every expectation and uh, as, as much hype as there may have been by the end of the summer. You know, I mean, he, he comes in, he, he's going to go back to North Carolina for his senior year. I mean, his, Dean Smith and his parents basically force him to turn pro. I mean, Michael right. Jordan, if he'd had it his way, he would have gone back into the dorm and Kenny Smith was there and he would have had a fun senior year. So by late spring, Jordan doesn't even know what he's going to do the next season. He goes to the Olympics. He's the star of the trials. He's the star of the Olympics There are these exhibition games where it's clear that even with magic and bird and Isaiah Thomas and Dominique Wilkins and Alex English, I mean, every, it's like a barnstorming tour and they play these ragtag teams of NBA players. And it's, Every game is clear. Michael Jordan's the best player on the court, including the NBA guys, (laughs) wins a gold medal. He's the best player at the Olympics. And by August, he's haven't played an NBA game yet, but is at a completely different place than when he started the summer. And it just sort of grew from there.
1: You have a story in the book about how, uh, I guess uh it was one of the Olympic games exhibitions and a ball goes over to Larry Bird's side of the court and Jordan goes over mm-hmm. to retrieve it. And, you know, they have this little back and forth and then fast forward seven months and Jordan is playing in the all-star game on the East team with Larry Bird. And again, Larry Bird and Magic had just played in the NBA finals, the pinnacle of the sport. And Jordan seven months later is, is you know, every bit the star that Magic and Larry Bird are as a, as a rookie. So it just showed how fast things move. The other thing I love about this book, John is, you know, I forgot all the things that were going on in pop culture. So you've got Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA. You've got uh, purple rain with Prince coming out. You've got the karate kid and man, you have some great stories about the karate kid. I'm a big Cobra Kai fan on Netflix. So um, I've been watching that closely and, Um, you know, so to see some of the stories about the karate kid and the budget for that movie and how no one really thought it was going to make much money. And it was just kind of this quaint little movie. And it turned into this big hit and look at how it's still relevant 37 years later. But there were a lot of pop culture things going on in 1984. And I thought you did a tremendous job weaving those into this book.
0: Um, no, thanks. I, I appreciate it. I mean, uh, you know, there's also, I mean, as long as there was a presidential election and, right. uh, you know, it was the summer of Reagan versus Mondale. Um, I mean, one thing that sort of became clear to me doing this book was, you know, I was, I was trying to, I mean, it was this amazing set of coincidences. And it's, as you say, it's, it's Karate Kid and it's, You know, it's Larry Bird wins the NBA final, beats Magic Johnson, Lakers, Celtics, David Stern, first few months of commissioner, he gets his final. And a few days later, Larry Bird is playing in an exhibition game against Michael Jordan. (laughs) Um, It's just, I mean, the the coincidences were wild. But it also, one thing that became clear to me was um, cable TV was really a big component of this. And cable was just starting to catch on. And David Stern got it. Vince McMahon got it. To some extent, Peter Uberoth got it. I mean, the real visionaries were starting to realize that this is game changer. And you mentioned, you mentioned ESPN. I mean, ESPN had been bleeding money. And in the summer of 1984, it gets sold to ABC. And that summer, ESPN realizes, wait a second. People like us. People are watching our shows. Why are we paying the cable companies to get on their band of channels? they should be paying us. Who wants to get, you know, whatever, with Time Warner cable? Who wants to get, there were a million cable operators at the time, but, you know, who wants to get Cox cable if there's no ESPN? Um, ESPN realized they could invert that model and instead of paying to be on the cable system, they could charge. And suddenly it completely, they wiped out their debts, you know, in, in one year. And suddenly by the end of 1984, ESPN was charging a profit. And I think that, you know, it was it was cable that ended up, being Vince McMahon's best friend. It was cable that was the way David Stern saw, not just of getting revenues, not just of charging the TBS and what would become TNT. It wasn't just a way to get revenues, but also it was a way for more and more people to watch the product. And you didn't have to be in Portland to watch the Blazers. And I think you think about that summer and you think about what MTV, you talk about music and you talk about the role of MTV and CNN was starting to turn a profit as a news network. I, I think this, you know, these are obviously tough times for cable right now. And We talk about the bundle, and we talk about streaming, and we talk about sort of uh, the, the decline, that, the, the iceberg melting at ESPN. But in 1984, that was one of the themes that really stuck out to me was that um, this new emerging cable universe was going to have a huge impact on, on sports and on culture.
1: Few more minutes. Um, Usually when someone writes a book, it's more on like a singular topic. This has so much information from so many things. Like I said, great backstories on the Karate Kid, great backstories on Bobby Knight's 1984 U.S. Olympic basketball team with Jordan and Barkley and Ewing and Malone and how long did it take you to find these stories? I mean, to me, this is like a lifetime of finding these stories and uncovering these little nuggets because it's so many different topics, but you uncovered some gem stories that are in this book.
0: Um, man, that's a good question. No, I don't, I mean, this, this book actually, it came pretty fast in part because uh, I, I found I was in a really nice sweet spot with um i mean i can't tell you how nice it is to hear this you're literally the first person i've talked about this with i mean this is one of these books you sort of did it was covid i mean this yeah. did not have sort of the usual uh build up as, as my other books um but i think you know what I, I feel like i got a time period totally by accident where it was close enough so that people had memories right i yeah. mean david stern talked about oh, i was in the stands with red Arbach, and yep. you know you talk to uh whoever mike tyson was great and he remembered the olympic trials 1984 like it was yesterday so it was like enough to, it was it was close enough so that people had fresh memories and were happy to tell the stories but it was far enough away so that they were basically like i don't give a shit here's what really happened i mean okay. they weren't particularly guarded they were i mean it was sort of enough detachment where they could talk freely and they didn't have to worry about burning bridges for like the statute of limitations on the karate kid all the guys <laughs> hitting on elizabeth's shoe like you know we're all in our 50s and 60s now like that's so people had really um, people had great memories and they were very generous sharing their memories, but it was far enough away so that they really could talk with, with freedom that you don't always have. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, I had the, the benefit of of sports illustrated and newspapers.com and you're looking for a story on X. And then you say, wait a second, you know, Mike Tyson lost at the Olympic trials that same day that right. John McEnroe beat Jimmy Connors. What? And you, uh, I mean, you you mentioned him. You know, I think, don't don't quote me on this. Good, good thing we're not doing this live. Um, no, but I, I think it's excessive. I got to look it up. But I think literally like, Born in the USA, Ghostbusters, Karate Kid, and Purple Rain came out like back to back to back to back Fridays. Wow. And it was just like every, you know, there was an Indiana Jones movie. There was a, again, you had a, all this going on with, there was an Olympics. There was a presidential election. And literally you'd go through newspapers and you'd realize like, every single day had a news event that resonates today. Yeah. And every single day had a different story that had some sort of currency in, in 2021. So, I mean, par- part of it, I, I think I got lucky just by this absolute concentration of stories and events, but also totally by accident, I realized pretty early that I got a nice sweet spot where, you know, whatever, David Fogg, Jerry Sloan, like all the people, John McEnroe, Martina, they had recollections but they were far enough away so that they talked freely and they didn't have to consult with their agent and they didn't have to worry they were going to upset someone. So uh, the, the interviews were a lot of fun because people really, I think, spoke sort of uninhibitedly, but it wasn't ancient history either. They still remembered, oh yeah, Leslie Visser was married to Dick Stockton and they used to eat dinner here. So people, um, pe- people had, they, they had memories and they were sort of very generous in sharing them. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, about a year, I think. Um, okay. Yeah, I think I tried to do about a chapter a month. So, yeah. you know, I mean, COVID was a curveball and it, uh, you know, I think nobody did to total candor. Like, I think people were very reluctant, rightfully so, to bring out a book in the middle of COVID. So I turned this manuscript, man, about 18 months ago. Um, and I think we kind of slow played it because of COVID. Yeah.
1: I look back uh, incredibly fondly on my conversations with David Stern, uh, and I can only imagine, you know, I read your conclusion at the end of this book, and and you note your conversations with him in his office, and obviously when he wasn't commissioner anymore, he had a little bit more time on his hands, and um, I found him to be a little bit more candid with uh, revisiting history and, and things of that nature in our conversations, and but what a blessing it was for you to be able to have those conversations with him before he left us.
0: Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, I, you know, you, you, and I have talked about this before. I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, he was still in the middle of things, but his life had slowed down to the point where, yeah, he could take, he could take a morning and uh, recollect for, you know, 90 minutes here and there. And he was really a big, he was a big help. I had to sell him on the concept. I think he was a little skeptical at first. And then he sort of said, wait a second, that was the same. Wayne Gretzky won his first cup. The same, you know, the same month that Magic and Bird played in the uh, the game seven final for the first time. And I think when he sort of um, realized the, the material, he was uh, he, he was great. And he had a lot of recollections, you know, yeah, about basketball. And yes, about the 1984 draft. But also he had a lot of recollections just about the world then. And this was sort of a seminar, you know, he was, I think officially he was appointed commissioner at the 1984 all-star game, but you know, you play out the season and you're traveling around and you're meeting the owners. And I think he saw that 1984 finals and draft, which, uh, you know, then, then as now they happen within a few days of each other. So imagine that it's your first, imagine it's your first few weeks on the job as NBA commissioner and you get game seven bird magic. And then a few days later, you're presiding over the drafting of Jordan and Barkley yeah um you know and it's, it's it's not even uh it's, you know it's, it's you're not even into july and that's what you've got so far um so you know it um he he was a big help in specifics and funny stories but also he was a really big help with what was going on in the world at that time and globalization and we, t- we talked about the rise of cable tv and interconnectivity and the value of what we would now call appointment programming Um, he was great sort of on the, the
1: details, but on the, on the macro as well. Before I let you go, I have a 60 minutes question for you. Since you're on 60 minutes, you're like a star on there. Now you're, you're interviewing all the big names when you're getting ready to sit down with someone like Jerry Seinfeld and do an interview with him. Give us a little bit of behind the scenes. I mean, you know, I've sat on the PR end of things before. I've also interviewed people, I know there's negotiations when you're going to interview someone there's you can ask these questions. You can't ask these questions. How much of that is on there or on 60 minutes? Are you guys like, Hey, we're going to address all the issues. And if you don't want to address them, then we're not going to have you on. How do you prep for a 60 minutes interview? I've always been fascinated oh, by that. That's a great, uh, it's, it's a great question. I have
0: to decide. Uh, I, got, I got to think on my feet about what level of industrial secret no i mean i think i think honestly and i hope i'm not uh violating some code of Omerity here i i think you kind of hit on it which is the the attitude at some level is this is 60 minutes we got to fill 12 and a half 13 minutes of of tv here there's a track record here and if you're not gonna play ball that's you god bless you that's totally your prerogative but someone else will. And we're just not going to do the story. So I, I think when people agree to sit down and say, you know, obviously if it's an investigative piece or, uh, you know, a, you're doorstepping someone, it doesn't apply. But for someone like Jerry Seinfeld, he knows what it entails. And if there's some publicist that came back and said, you know, he'll do it, but you can't ask about X, Y, and Z. And he's not going to, you'd say, totally get it. Totally. You're right. But there's, that's not going to work. There's we'll just go on to the next subject um and i mean for for the record he he was incredibly cool and not just in sort of a, a ball playing kind of way but he was really into 60 minutes and he had questions and there was no sense of like i've got a plane to catch let's move things along he was great with his time it's a pity it was in the middle of covid because um you know i, th- I thought we could have done a lot more if there weren't all these restrictions he he was fantastic in. um I mean, every piece basically what what you would expect him to be, but I think no. I mean, I think it's one of the sort of real luxuries of sixty minutes, right? You're not you're not the beat writer, and if LeBron has a good game and he's in a good mood or a bad mood, you've got to write something. Mm-hmm. If somebody doesn't want to go all in, then you don't do the story. And the flip side of that is, if someone's committed, they're committed. So um, it's you know it's it's a real luxury i realize and i think it's one reason why the show's so good yeah. and if, if somebody's you know if, if i'm just picking out a name here who's someone who's notoriously difficult you know i don't know if, if kevin, kevin durant doesn't want to play ball then you don't do the kevin durant piece right um so i think there's this expectation of this is going to be thorough this is going to be quality this is going to be fair but if, if you know if, if you're not all in we're not going to do the piece i hope hope that uh doesn't get me in any trouble, but that's in my experience.
1: experience. If you go back to the 13-year-old John McEnroe kid, the kid walking around with the tennis racket you, that Michael Jordan calls you John McEnroe, as you said, kind of the geeky sports nerdy kid. Mm -hmm. I was that kid too. When I have people like Ryan Sandberg and Roger Staubach and David Stern and people on this show over the last 17 years, people who I literally had posters up in my room of, when I was growing up and you're talking to the Jerry Seinfeld and you're talking to Larry Bird and you're talking to David Stern and all these people. Do you ever kind of pause and go, wow, like if the 13 year old me knew that I'd be talking to these people today, he'd probably jump out of his skin. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know how it is. In
0: spo- I mean, when, when you and I first met each other and I was well, 21 years old and working for the Portland Trailblazers. Yep you have these pinch me moments and, you know, there's, there's Shaquille O'Neal and I'm talking to him. And I think, I think that tends to wear off pretty quickly in sports. And I think, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of feel like you're, you're there to do a job. You're not there to get autographs. And uh, right. I have no delusions, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. I had a very nice day with him. We, uh, we got along great. We laughed at each other's jail. You know, we shook hands, but we're not friends. I mean, I didn't, I didn't. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, earlier and you know, when, when you start out and you're, you, you know, I mean, you and I both, we were standing on in a half court shooting contest at Memorial Coliseum floor <laughs> and six, six months earlier, we're, you know, I'm an idiot in college. And then, I mean, I think initially you have that. And I think that, I think that wears off really quickly in our line of work because you know, you're, you're there to tell stories and write stories and serve an audience. And you're not there to like take selfies and get autographs. And right. Um, I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, you also realize it sounds so trite, but you know, pe- for the most part, pe- people are people, right? And it it doesn't take long before you realize, like, just just another guy that's trying to come up with some challenges and keep his family happy, and you know, find his social tribe, and um, you know, they they're you you talk to celebrities and you talk to people and you realize there's, there's a lot more that um we have in common than sets us apart
1: yeah no i agree I, people are just people whether you're jerry seinfeld or you know whoever i i've always been curious about people and i'm not doing hard news like you are i'm not doing 60 minutes so i'm more curious and my audience is more curious at like what's the this person's backstory or why did they make these decisions or you know things of, of that nature so um It is interesting to find out those stories. And I I guess my point was, I just think it's interesting that some of these people that I've had the opportunity to talk to are people that I grew up watching as a kid. So, you know, this book really took me back, 1984. Big Cubs fan. You know, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. We didn't have a Major League Baseball team. The Diamondbacks weren't there yet. So Chicago was huge because they had spring training there. So the Cubs would come there. You know, I'm cutting class to go to a Cubs game. Ryan Sandberg is starting to come on the scene in 1984. You mentioned that in your book. Um, and, you know, I just, the book really took me back. So great job with the book. And, uh, you know, I know it was a lot of work, but I think when people read this, like I got to tell you, I, this had some of the most incredible stories in it, backstories. I love backstories of, of any book I've read.
0: Man, I really uh, it, it it heartens me to hear that because um, you know again part part of it's COVID and part of it's just as you say it's a different book than your typical find a team or find a subject and just go with it so um, you know pr- probably fewer people have read this in advance than any book I've read uh, uh, written so um,
1: I'm
0: I'm happy to hear that you're you're kind of my target audience so uh, this is this is very very kind of you to say that.
1: All right, everyone go out and buy Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. You can find it in bookstores and on amazon.com starting on June 15th. John Wartime, you can find him on Twitter at John underscore Wartime. Find him on 60 Minutes on CBS. Great job with the book. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. And uh, I hope you sell a bazillion copies of this thing.
0: I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, it's been a long, long time since we played lunchtime hoops at the uh, Memorial Coliseum floor, sounding like those old guys that are reminiscing, but uh, no, I, I always get a kick out of uh, speaking with you and thinking of where we were in the, in the mid nineties in Portland. So uh, always a pleasure.
1: Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.